Hello there, my name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. If you ask any sea angler with a few years experience either under his or her belt, they will invariably agree that so far as coastal fish stocks go, population numbers and recruitment for our mainstay species are in a dire state and constantly under threat. Ask the same question specifically in relation to angling's two main target species, which are cod over the winter months and bass during the spring, summer and autumn, and the story suddenly gets decidedly worse. With bass in particular, it's almost as if we're facing an orchestrated plot to wipe the species out altogether by steadfastly adhering to a minimum landing size of 36 centimetres, which is at least 10 centimetres, and in some instances even more than that, below the size which a species needs to reach sexual maturity. On the basis of that fact alone, all other legislation linked to the current minimum takeable limit has to be regarded as being fundamentally flawed. There have been a few hard-earned concessions in recent times, driven for the most part by the Scottish Shangling Conservation Network for species such as common skate and taupe, neither of which have any great commercial value, so not much of a concession really there, though anything that helps any species of fish at any time has to be applauded nonetheless. Besides the obvious pressure put on fisheries ministers by our extremely powerful and vocal commercial lobby, a great deal of the blame for many of the UK's fishery-related problems, in anglers' eyes at least, comes from our membership of the European Union, which opens up our fisheries to boats from other member states. A very clear example of federal considerations riding roughshod over individual member state interests. That said, the Americans have successfully operated a similar federal and individual state coastal fishery management situation for many years, which shows that it can be made to work. So with that in mind, for this particular podcast I'm attending the Gulf of Mexico Fisheries Conference at Tampa in Florida to interview Kathy Barco, Chairman of the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, Florida being the self-acclaimed sport fishing capital of the world. Like the UK today, Florida, in common with many other coastal states of the US, has had to take tough and at times costly decisions to be able to make such a bold claim and reap the rewards that can come from it. Just how they went about this process is why I'm here today, in the hope that when this gets into the ears of those who need to hear it back home, we might, to some degree, also look to follow that lead. So perhaps we should start by looking at the history and process behind how Florida and the other states have managed to bridge the gap between the early struggling days and the present time, in terms of consistently being able to produce the goods today. We're struggling to keep the goods. That will be an ongoing struggle. Saltwater fisheries has had some regulation since the 1800s, but it was all very localized and only particularly on certain fish. And in 1983, the Marine Fisheries Commission was created. And that put a major catalyst for how fisheries were managed in Florida. Everything came together and you did it under one entity. And then in 1999, the commission as we know it today was formed. And what we did was they combined the game commission and the fish commission together so now we regulate wildlife and fisheries all together as one. And we are a constitutional-based organization which has a lot of pull, which means that when we put in rules and regulations, they stay enacted. And if someone doesn't agree with it, they have a legal process to go through, but the rule still stays enacted. 
the animal or the fish are protected while you're arguing in court, which is the best way of all to be able to manage wildlife and fish. Then in 1976, the federal government created Magnuson-Stevens, which is a national fisheries management law. And that's what we work under for a lot of our offshore fish in federal waters is Magnuson-Stevens. This fishery that we're here at this meeting for is Magnuson-Stevens based rules and laws and implementation in federal waters. As I suggested earlier, a comparable situation for us would be the European Union acting like your federal jurisdiction and each member country making additional separate laws as your member states do when necessary for their own best interests, which could work well, if only the UK government had the guts to insist on the implementation of such a system. The fish don't know the difference, so the state will back their rules with the federal rules, consistently or inconsistently, with what's best for the state. There's been multiple laws passed, rules passed to protect the fish. And a lot of it is science-based, got the science much better, got stock assessments much better, and the review process much better. I mean, there's just a whole list of fisheries rules, starting with fish that were in trouble, Goliath grouper, we shut down the harvest. They're still shut down when they were considered overfished. There's a myriad of rules and there are regulations that we use both recreational and commercially and talk to a lot of stakeholders. For the sake of outsiders like myself who know little or nothing about Florida's fishery history, how poor did the fishing become in order to trigger the type of action you mentioned as being necessary to set it back on the road to recovery? We've never had a total collapse of a fishery or a fishery go extinct or something because we way overfished it. We understood before that that you needed to stop a process. There was nothing on the verge of going extinct. Red drum, I already mentioned Goliath grouper, but red drum was one of those fish that was extremely overexploited, both recreational and commercially. and. 20 plus years ago we put in regulation first that stopped the commercial sale then completely closed the season for red drum and then started a management rebuilding plan and that that was that's joint red drum is is also runs up and down the east coast of the United States so it's in conjunction with Atlantic States Fisheries Commission along with Florida and Florida actually kept its rules which is slot limit and bag size for recreational very tight up until last year and that stock actually rebounded twice as fast as the models showed that it would but there has never been a reopening of the commercial take of that fish and it is only a recreational fishery right now which is actually what we need to be doing now with our baths particularly as they are now being widely farmed for the table, allowing wild populations to be left outside the consumer loop, potentially leaving the species for recreational fishing only. Snook is another one that was fished a lot, and snook is a very popular uh, recreational fish, and it still has challenges now, but what we did was we, we as a commission for snook, a redfish, trout, 
when we set goals and there's biological goals and there's a baseline that says this is where that goal is, say it's 20% SPR. I'll do red drum. I'll say 20% escapement. What gets away is what you need in order just for the fish to sustain itself. Well, as a commission, we said that's not what we want. We don't want to manage at just getting by. We want to manage for abundance. We want this to be a really good fishery. So we set that escapement number at 40%. So when the stock assessments would come in and the number was 40% or 45% or 38%, that's where we were aiming and that's how we did our regulations on both slot size, slot limits, and bag limits. We just opened redfish from one redfish to two redfish, did not change the slot size. We decided to break the state up in regions to better manage it. It's one, other, one of our other management tools is to let's look at what the fish do. Not necessarily what's easy for us to regulate or treat all fish as, a, as the same, you can't do that. You treat the fish management based on the fish, which is a huge difference and a change. One shoe does not fit all. So redfish in the northeast has an escapement today up in the 70 plus percent range. In the panhandle of Florida, it's also up there in the 60, 70 percent range. South Florida doesn't. So it has different regulations for redfish than the two northern sections do because the goals haven't been met. But we didn't want to punish the two northern regions, which is the best of their habitat. They will never be as prolif proliferic. <laughs> Poli that's it. In the south as they are in the north because it's the southern range of their habitat. So that was a give back to fisheries, to the fishermen. My biggest thing is as we shut all these, or tighten down on all these fisheries rules and some of them get shut down for a length of time, we do that and we promise the fishermen, you bite this bullet, that when it, when it recovers, we're going to give it back. And it seems like that never happens. So when we had the ability last year for both redfish and trout to give back, and we did, I was amazed that it was actually a struggle to give it back. There was a whole generation that had never had, you know, it's like if they, they think if it's not broke, don't fix it. Instead of, this isn't the way it was, the way it should be, the way it used to be. What we really want is you to enjoy the fishery the way it used to be. And now that the fish are back, we're going to give them the ability for you to take them home to feed your family. It's what we promised. Because UK anglers won't necessarily be familiar with things like slot limits, perhaps you should explain the various management restriction tools open to you and what the benefits of each of these are. We have a lot of tools in the toolbox for regulation, both recreational and commercial. And because the commercial sector is so well controlled with landings, we know the pounds, we know exactly what they've landed, the commercial sector is usually, and, and the tools for its fishery are usually trip limits, meaning you can only bring in 7,000 pounds of fish in any one particular trip that you've taken, and that has multiple benefits. If you get on a congregation of fish out there, it keeps them from wiping them out. It keeps you from 
hitting the dock and driving the price down because of an overabundance of fish at one time. There's a lot of management reasons for trip limits. They have gear restrictions, what they can and cannot use. That may be a hook. Longliners have not been allowed in Florida State waters since I think the 80s. Back in 1994, the people of the state of Florida voted for a net limitation. I know I was reading with your stuff, like red mullet and the nets and the rules for fishing with those and a bycatch problem. And that bycatch is your juvenile fish and other fish of everything but what you intended. So the net limitation is probably one of the, the biggest reasons we have abundance of these fisheries because it stopped that the huge net size and they're now limited to two 500 square foot mesh nets. They cannot be monofilament. They have to be actively worked. So that's a gear restriction. We'll talk about later how doing it as a constitutional amendment was not the right way to do it, but that's the way it got passed because they tried to do it through the regulation process and they got such pushback from the commercial fishermen. But we now live inside that program. For commercial, there's closed areas. Sometimes there's closed seasons, but not necessarily in commercial because you've got a pound limit, a weight limit, and once you hit that weight limit, your fishery is closed. So it allows the fishermen to fish sort of at their own leisure or what works in their schedule, not based on weather or here's your season between these months and this month. Some commercial fisheries have closed seasons, specifically spawning times. They're not arbitrarily chosen. The recreational fisherman works with closed seasons, bag limits, meaning the number of fish that you can take home, slot sizes, either a minimum size that you can keep or a slot between 18 and 27 inches or something I'm trying to remember what snook was off the top of my head. Then there's also closed seasons. We had really bad cold spell year before last. In the winter had a huge fisheries kill. It's particularly hard on snook because the cold weather went so far south. So snook on the Gulf Coast has actually been closed to a take since then. It is scheduled to open in the fall of this year and the Atlantic side has rebounded in snook and we opened the season back this year. The recreational side also has gear restrictions. If you go to offshore reefs, the recreational angler for deeper fish have to have venting tools and all kinds of stuff to try to put the fish back alive if you're not taking it. By this, you mean tools to put right depth-related decompression problems such as blown swim bladders, which could otherwise prevent these fish from getting back down again, which I know have been proven to work through studies done on captured, tag-released amberjacks. There's regulations about not being able, like tarpon, you can't take the fish out of the water. You can buy a tarpon tag, and that's another management tool where you buy, you buy a snook stamp that you put on your fishing license that allows you to fish for snook and keep them. And tarpon has a tarpon tag that you can purchase if you want to keep one. 
Both of those are mainly recreational game fish or trophy fish, and you don't usually keep them. You just let them go. Now, snook, yes, it's got a one-fish bag limit for keeping. Florida has over 500 species of fish, so one of the reasons why we claim to be the fishing capital of the world is because of the variety. We have everything from freshwater lake fishing to estuary marine fishing to offshore. It's one thing having regulations, a completely separate problem enforcing them, which to be done fairly and effectively requires a lot of manpower backed up by an equally large amount of finance. I was looking at some of the way that y'all enforce your rules or don't enforce the rules or the process you have to go through to determine if you're going to prosecute for a rule violation. FWC has very good resources. Our law enforcement officers have, they have jurisdiction and the ability to enforce all of Florida's rules. Could be a traffic violation. They are a sworn law enforcement officer and they, they're required, they have to do time in the woods and they have to do time on the water. Some of them will be more water than woods, but they have to be able to do both. I think we have 10 large vessels that can go into federal waters. Those vessels are partially funded by federal funds. So when you get down to a funding part, you've got licenses, that fishing license that you pay for, you have stamps, that's the snook stamp, your tarpon tag, we have lobster stamp. There's a federal excise tax on all sporting goods that goes to Washington and then turns around and comes back to the states to pay for sporting activities. Might be boat ramps and it might be law enforcement. But I think one of the best things that we have, and I was trying to compare ours to yours, was we have fixed guidelines. If you violate a law, and a, a fisheries law, they check you when you get to the dock and you have an undersized fish. It's the discretion of the officer, but if it's blatant and you know, or he sat and watched you, you know, we do a lot of plain clothes police work and task force, and they may set off to the side and watch you carry that fish from your bucket and put it in the trunk of your car and come back and here's the bucket, you know, again, so that you only have your one fish or your two fish when you get checked only to find out they're at your car or stuffed somewhere in the boat. They know what the violation is. They know what their penalty is. Their penalty is a fine or a misdemeanor of $50. That's like the minimum. The maximum could be $500. If it's commercial, you can have all your gear taken away from you, depending on what the violations are. And it's not arbitrary. It is set. Here's the guidelines. Here's the rules. So both the fishermen, whether they're commercial or recreational, know the risk. It's not a if. It's just a matter of what's going to happen. You, you can take them to court. But if they've got the fish and you were there, it's sort of a done deal. I think that is one of the biggest maybe differences is the ability to prosecute and the ability to just enforce the rules. And you are always going to have people that don't follow the rules.
but we don't run the agency that way or you don't run your management based on that little bit that don't follow the rules. I think people just really in general, and I know it's got to be the same in England, the reason you work so hard as it, at it is the people generally have an appreciation for the resource and what they have and their ability to get to it. On the commercial sector, it actually would have been very impressive yesterday. We had a group of a roundtable discussion last night, and the red snapper fishermen entered into their own quota program because they could see the fishery going downhill and being overfished. And so they set themselves to their own regulations. Yeah, I can just see that happening over our side. You have to get a buy-in from the recreational sector and the commercial sector, or all the laws you pass and everything that you do is a mute point. And your enforcement has to be there, but they also have to respect that enforcement and the way it's going to be prosecuted, knowing that it's going to be. And we still do have issues with judges that when a case gets before a judge, they look at it and but we're talking about some fish? You took undersized lobster? I got a guy over here that killed somebody and you're asking me to, to rule on some undersized lobster. So that's still a challenge. <laughs> and your enforcement officers, from what I've seen, are also armed. Yes, they are. But just as importantly, good enforcement also comes down to plenty of manpower. So what sort of numbers of officers are we talking about here? What do we have? 800, 700 officers? Yeah, I want to say. Um, Double check that. Hundreds of officers around the state. But if you look at the state of Florida, we have 22 plus 100 miles of shoreline. 10,000 lakes. I want to say close to 20 million people. Yeah. Not counting visitors. The officers, they do resource protection. They go through our academy, they go through a law enforcement academy, same academy everybody else goes to, four months of police training. Then they do two months of resource training, fisheries, wildlife, endangered species protection. Then they are put out with another officer to do in the field training. A lot of our law enforcement also is first responders to hurricanes, disasters, bad wrecks, bad fires, because we're already in the woods and we're already on the water. Bad boating accident, and it will be the first people to the scene. For specialized funding, there's manatees, panthers, bear tag. There's license plates that are sold that if you buy that vanity, what they call a... Which group are you in? We do, we're just using the room temporarily for an interview. Okay, because I have somebody that purchased this room for today. Is there another okay. room that we can finish up our interview on? Um, okay, so it seems that somebody else has booked the room we're currently in for another purpose, which means we're going to have to move. But that actually might be a blessing in disguise because of the background interference noise from the air conditioning. Right, here we go again. We were previously discussing the financing of your enforcement objectives. Part of our budget comes through the legislature, our state legislature, with general revenue. We really try, though, to be self-funded as much as possible, to not have to go back to the legislature for funds. 
but we can't help it. But the law enforcement has federal funds that come to it for protection of federal species or in federal areas. Some of that offshore work is done with federal funds. Like I said, license sales, tag sales, stamp sales. And when I say tags, both fisheries and wildlife, you buy a uh, gator tag if you want to go gator hunting. All of that goes into a law enforcement pool or a management tool for species. And it all gets kind of blended together, you know, pooled. The specific funding is if you buy a manatee tag, it specifically goes to manatee protection. And it goes into a trust fund, and it can, that money can only be used for manatee protection. If you buy a panther tag, that money can only be used for panther protection. And in that funds a certain number of law enforcement officers for the protection of those species. So what happens then to money from fines? Where does all that go? If you're fined, a certain amount goes to the state or the court system for processing the fine, and then the balance is returned to the agency. And all the license revenue turnover I take it is also funded back to you as well. Yes. I can't shake my head. <laughs> yeah. Remember to answer the question. We have uh, we have a bear tag, a bass tag, a turtle tag. But what exactly do these tags mean and what is the purpose? It's your license plate on your car. It's what they call a vanity tag. It's a specialized tag in the state. You can pick out a pretty picture. As you're driving around, you'll see the different tags on cars. You pay extra for that license plate every year, but you, it's like donating to that cause. And the state is allowed to have their own universities have them. There's a whole list of vanity tags. It's an excellent way to raise funds. And the, the public loves turtle tags. There's a turtle on the tag, there's a panther on the tag, there's a manatee. There is some money that we, and I'm not an expert in the financial side of where our money goes, talk about a quagmire, but there is money that, that is collected in the state, sent to the federal government or sent into the state budget that we may not get back. You know, it goes into a bigger program or we have to go up and fight to get the money back. But in general, it is set to be a return. Whatever you contribute, you get back. Whatever you can control is yours to deal with. Which is the way it should be, but not in the UK, I'm afraid, which is why we have so much resistance to the suggested imposition of a saltwater fishing licence. One point I would like to go back to for a minute is the buying into the concept example you gave earlier of the red snapper fishermen going down the self-imposed regulation route. Obviously, that is the sensible thing to do because it's in their own best interest to sow the seeds for a future harvest in the same way that an arable farmer would. The problem is that too many fishermen, and in particular UK bass fishermen, and especially so-called anglers illegally selling the catch, live only for today. So how do you sell the long-term interest to those people? Constant education. And they have to see a result to what they have done. Right now, it's really contentious on both the east and the gulf coast of Florida with these federal fisheries issues because the law of Magnuson-Stevens that I mentioned, if a fishery is overfished or undergoing overfishing, it has to stop within a year. 
So a lot of these fisheries rules have been kind of put off or pushed out a little or they were rebuilding but not fast enough and then Washington changed the laws, our Congress did, and said you will stop it now. And that has made a huge impact where whole fisheries were just shut down. The snapper fishery on the Atlantic coast is still shut down and it's been shut down now for almost two years and that has had a huge economic impact on the recreational fishing industry that sells boats and tackle and gear and the commercial sector. It's hard sometimes to get the buy-in and not get the government shoving this down my throat, but they don't really have a choice. Right now we're trying to go to Washington to get some flexibility in Magnuson's. It says if the stock is rebuilding, nothing says it has to rebuild in five years or ten years. The idea is that if we can get this fishery stock on an uphill trend, a rebuilding trend, let's do it under a program that doesn't hurt the fishermen and the economy just for the sake of building the fishery faster. Everything is a balance. It's got to be a balance of regulation, it has to be a balance of the ability to get out there and enjoy the resource and have enough of the resource to enjoy it. And it's not always easy. You know, the commercial sector will push hard, it's their livelihood. And the recreational sector, you've got charter boats that are taking recreational fishermen fishing, but it's their business. And even if you look at the recreational sector, you've invested a lot of money in a fishing boat and fuel and tackle to not be able to go catch anything. And what happens is if a fishery gets really bad to the point you have to shut it down, the fishermen just go find something else to fish for. Now you're chasing your tail. A fishery that wasn't in trouble because you shut down Red Snapper, everybody start targeted sea bass. So now sea bass gets in trouble, or triggerfish gets in trouble, or it just goes down the line. They have the capital invested, commercial and recreational. They're going fishing. <laughs> As an outsider with the fishing interest, Having seen the numerous quality of facilities, the bolts, the guides and the tackle shops over here, I mean even Walmart, which is the twin to Asda back home in the UK, sells tackle and bait. It is, quite literally, a multi-billion dollar industry. But it either wouldn't or couldn't have been so had you not speculated to accumulate by investing in your fish stocks, which is a lesson we in the UK unfortunately look destined never to learn. So people over here can see through self-interest that it is all worth it. That said, there must be a point in such a rebuilding process when all people can see is pain without gain until the job gets done, which may not even be in their lifetime. How do you not only get, but continue to keep those people on board? I'm trying to adjust this to the UK because your environment is different. Florida is a southern state in a big country. A lot of people come to Florida for the weather and all kinds of other things and the fishing is another experience. They've come for the beaches and the sun and the fun and a whole bunch of recreational fishing that happens. So we are also challenged with the guy that only comes to Florida for a week and how do you get him to buy in? But he wants that same experience every year when he comes back. The locals 
I guess to get the buy-in is we live in paradise and you want to keep paradise paradise and I'm trying to be able to convert that to without really knowing having never lived in England what the draw is to get people to fish and are they fishing strictly for the experience of fishing are they fishing to take the fish home to eat it eating your catch was certainly the main driver when I first started out but with less fish now to catch more disposable income not to need to take fish home plus a greater understanding and appreciation not only of conservation but of sport fishing too that balance has most certainly shifted on top of which Many UK anglers are now acutely aware of our coastal fisheries problems to the point that because they know that politicians are not prepared to help out, they themselves are willing to do their own little bit, as meaningless as that can sometimes appear when you know that some commercial fisherman is going to get that fish that you've just returned at some stage in the future. And it has also to be said that the number of anglers has declined on a pro rata basis with our diminishing fish stocks and to get both back to the point of a balancing return for any investment would probably now take a monumental effort. That said, Florida has been there and done it, so perhaps it still is possible. It takes years of persistence, and it really does. It didn't do it overnight. It's been 20 plus 30 years of steady working at it, with one is having the resource, uh, the ability to have the funds put where they belong to be used for specific reasons. Even in our boating industry, if you pay for a boat registration, that money goes back, or a huge percentage goes back into waterways, boat ramps, public access to municipalities buying public access to get on the water, to waterways marking. Everything's got a designated reason it doesn't go into a big pool and then it gets pulled in by special interest groups. To some extent that always happens. You're going to lose some of it, but the majority of the money, the intent is to go back from who paid for it. It's a user pay sort of system for boat registration, for tackle that you buy, for licenses that you pay for goes back into the management of all of those resources and the ability for the public to get to them. In effect then, you're selling a dream. You might not benefit from it, but at some stage somebody most certainly will. Not an easy thing to buy into. Do you have a fishery that is maybe in trouble, but do you have the biology and the research behind that fishery to say this fishery can rebuild really fast? The fish is a, matures really fast, it can rebound fast. That's a fishery to me where you can start because you will see if you just take one fishery and you can see the, the results of your efforts really fast. Some fish, that's not the case. Goliath grouper is an extremely long time maturing fish, lives to be very old, it was shut down 30 years ago and still hasn't been opened back up. Probably can be to some limited extent, but right now because there's not been any fishing, there's no data that we have to be able to open the fishery back up. So you got to go back to data collection. And some of that's a catch-22 and there's a lot of other issues when it comes to that. We shut snapper down and now we don't have the data to collect for snapper because we don't have the fish because we shut it down. So <laughs> it was, did somebody not think of this ahead of time? But if you have a fish 
that can rebound really fast biologically because it matures quickly. So that if you put in some sort of regulation, in three years or four years, you can say, look, this is what happened to it. And all of a sudden we have a huge abundance of them. And we had a good year class. This is what the results can be of the actions that we take. I would say that's where I would start. You probably already know that, but it would be one that you know that you could get a rebound really quick. Now, the other side to this is we do fisheries rules. There's also habitat destruction and trying to work on the habitat side of the fishery at the same time. You can put all the bag limits and all of the gear restrictions and closed seasons and if that fish can't reproduce and have a place to live it's all for naught. So the other side comes back onto the ground. Are there rivers that are dammed that need to be undammed or in general obstructions? Are there waste that's going into the waters that shouldn't be? Other water quality control issues if you walk around the state of Florida and you go past a, a grate, a catch basin in the road where stormwater runoff is going in, many places, and this is usually maybe a city ordinance, there's a sticker or a stamp on it about what you don't put in anything there. It's going to show up in your river. It's going to show up out there in the bay that that's where this water goes. Because a lot of the general population doesn't really think about that and doesn't realize so don't pour your oil <laughs> or your yard waste or be careful of nutrient runoff. You end up having algae blooms in your estuaries and your waterways from fertilizers of people's yards. Prosecuting those types of offence through the courts was what I did for a job for many years. And I have to say that water quality is actually very good in the UK these days as a result, particularly on the fresh water scene. But just to go back to your suggestion of starting with a quickly regenerating species of fish, that for us would be the cod, which also happens to be one of the country's main angling target species. So if anyone ultimately listens to this who is in a position to take up your idea back home, that would be a very good place to start. On the flip side of that coin, unfortunately, our other top angling species, the bass, takes a painfully long road to maturity, which is currently being denied in law, due, as I said earlier, to setting its minimum takeable size limit 10 centimetres less than the size it needs to reproduce. Have you had to tackle that kind of problem over here? And if so, how did you go about it? Well, that's where the good science comes in. Once you became science-based regulations and you treat each fish and fisheries separate, so it makes for complicated rules, but yes, it's what makes the rules work. Right now we were just talking about snapper and grouper and a minimum size and at what age do they mature, at what size do they mature, and what you really want, like redfish has a slot limit on it, and that slot limit is so that you can't take the big fish you got to take a fish within this size. Snook has a slot limit that allows you to take a sort of a medium-aged fish. Yeah. But you leave the big fish, the spawning stock, to rebuild your fishery. And there's everything going, well, can we get a redfish tag to take one trophy redfish? 
there are issues on those fisheries that have slot limits on state trophy size, the biggest fish. How do you get those state trophies now if you're not allowed to take the fish? So we work, we work with IGFA and other fisheries groups, but IGFA holds all of the record books for everything, and if it's a fish that you're not allowed to take in state waters, they won't acknowledge. If somebody tries to put in for a Goliath grouper record, they won't acknowledge it. The challenge is if you can, especially with technology these days, is if you bring the fish up, you never have to take it out of the water. You can do regulated, qualified measurements of the fish, figure out its length and weight, and submit that way and let the fish go. You have pictures, you have everything. It's working out those details so that you don't actually have to kill a fish in order to get a record. Actually, we also now have legislation preventing the bringing ashore of certain species of fish, but they can be brought into the boat, weighed and released. The problem is that boat weighed records are not accepted back in the UK, so the records for those particular fish species are now historical. They are still listed, but no further claims will be accepted, which is a pity, as two in particular are vitally important angling species. So how do Florida's anglers go about claiming records for the species they can legitimately catch but can't bring into the boat? Because our fish recorders urgently need to be brought up to speed into accepting that a dead body on a set of scales is not the only way of describing the size of a fish. One suggestion I put forward was a simple length times girth point score running in parallel with the existing weight base list. But even that was fallen on deaf ears. Prior to and then after, and this is by two different standards, and you know, I'm not that close with IGFA, but I know it's an ongoing, evolving process because they're just as dedicated to, yes, you can take a trophy fish, but if there's a way to do it without having to kill the fish in fisheries that are in trouble, if the fishery is sustainable and is fine, and that's what you want is a sustainable fishery, you want to be able to take a fish home and eat it to feed your family. That's the whole purpose of a lot of people going fishing. Or even if it's not you going fishing, you want to be able to eat a fish sandwich in a restaurant. You come to Florida, part of that vacation experience is having a fresh grouper snapper sandwich or cobia or anything else that we have offshore or Florida lobster or stone crabs. You want to be able to eat it. And so once again, it's back to a balance. But we also have those same challenges in trying to work with them. But I think they may be more open to coming up with a solution. And as technology gets better, if it's a fish that you know you're not going to keep, is to don't pick it up, don't handle it. All of that inhibits its ability to go back into the water and survive again. Even if it's a, a fish that if you want to pick up a snook and release it, you pick it up under its stomach. Don't hold it by its lip less stress. It's just being conscious of, of all that and it is a steady constant teaching process. Education I would say half of what we do if not more than half is all education and even when our law enforcement officers stop somebody if they think it's just sort of didn't know or ignorance they will go through a huge education program with them at the time that they stop them so that it, it doesn't perpetuate. 
well, this is better way to handle this fish, or this is a better way. This is a better way to do so and so, or this is what you should do with your tackle. Just as an aside, I was fishing in Germany a couple of years ago, and while I was able to buy a visitor's license, residents had to go on a course with a final examination, then pay quite a sizable fee of money to get a license to fish the Baltic Sea. To get a hunting license in Florida, you have to sit for an exam. You actually have to do a day in the field with a gun and pass that course and do the exam is online that you take but it's a two part you can do part at home on a computer and then the other part you have to come in and show your ability to shoot and handle a, a gun we keep trying to get a boating license and there's a lot of push back from the marine sales community to not have a boating license my thought process on that is when that person walks in and wants to buy a boat who's never owned a boat he needs to have some type of instructions on what to do we just use it as entertainment at the boat ramp or you use it as as they say 20% of the fishermen catch 80% of the fish because there's a whole bunch of fishermen out there that just wanted to go try it and don't really know exactly what they're doing the bad thing is some of that can hurt the resource. When I say the resource, not just the fish, but its habitat. We actually have rules and regulations down in the Keys and particularly in South Florida for grass bottom. And if you destroy that grass bottom with your boat prop, you pay for it to be put back. You know, trying to protect the habitat so that the fish can have a a chance in terms of actual restrictions on what you can or can't do with fish, such as bag limits, slot limits, and not lifting fish out of the water even for a photograph, this must impact in some way or other on the services a charter boat skipper or guide can offer. So how have they reacted to this? Well, most of what we have, you can get a photograph. If it's guides that are bone fishing, permit fishing, tarpon fishing, snook fishing, red fishing, you can bring that fish in to the boat, get your picture, and put them back. When you get to bigger fish offshore, you'd prefer not to pick up, you know, you really don't want to bring a sailfish over the side of the boat, but you can get the picture of the fish alongside of the boat in the water under control. Actually, from us, on a guide standpoint, they're quite happy because they want to be able to sell that trip tomorrow and the next day and go back and catch the same redfish and the same trout and the same bonefish that they caught before. And Florida being so diverse with so much coastline and different thought processes, I'm sure it's in England. The people in England have a different culture in the north than they have in the south or the east or the west. The culture in Florida is different and there's a lot less people in northern Florida than there is in southern Florida and a lot of the people from south Florida didn't originate here and good or bad that's just how it is and a lot of people come to vacation come to south Florida they want to go fishing they want to go bone fishing snook fishing permit fishing they're going to get on a plane and they're going to leave. They don't even have the ability to do anything with that fish if they do catch it. They just want the ability to catch it. Then you've got North Florida, especially where we're talking in the Gulf and the Panhandle, and people come down from other states, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia. They come to the coast of the Panhandle. 
they brought their car and their cooler and they came with their family and they've spent a week down here but they want to load that cooler up and go back home with fish for the family so it's a whole different dynamics just in general in the same state so we're trying to regulate fisheries for different purposes and we listen to these stakeholders at our meetings and some of them say no we want this fish to strictly be a game fish or we want it to have rock star status and we eliminated the keeping of bonefish. Yeah, it was a fish you could take one home and eat. And we got enough pressure from the stakeholders that said, nope, there is more value in not eating that fish. And because the stocks are okay, but their problem is mainly habitat loss. It's in South Florida. It's got water quality issues. It has habitat loss issues or things that used to be marsh and flats or canals now. So the idea was in order to keep it a robust fishery, don't take it. It is worth more to the guy that comes down and just wants to catch one and put it back. Permit is kind of the same way. There's all those flats fish. And the majority of their guides are bringing in visitors that have come from all over the world to come here to catch but, well, the other thing is, in Florida, you can come to Florida and catch this absolute, if you have a bucket list of fish to catch, it's one-stop shopping. <laughs> and in the same vein, how are the commercial fishermen taking it? Can they also see things from the same perspective? Yes and no. I mean, they end up, they have to accept it. When the net limitation first took effect back in 94, there was actually money set aside for retraining because you put a lot of fishermen out of business, a lot of commercial fishermen out. So there was programs set aside for them to get out of that business, go into something else. And I don't know a lot about those programs. I just know that there was money set aside by the legislature to do that, to try to change careers for these displaced fishermen. Having that net limitation as a constitutional amendment is not a good way to manage. It got there because they tried to do it the regular way through regulation and they wouldn't budge. It wasn't happening. So the constitutional amendment portion, it is now in our state constitution. We've done a bunch of other regulations or rules, laws that should not have been through our constitution also. But it doesn't give you a way to manage 15 years later when these fisheries have recovered that from all of the, they did what they were supposed to do. You limit this net size. You limit the ability. It has to be an actively worked net now. All kinds of fish stocks have recovered. And now that you don't have an ability to work inside the system to adjust that net. It is what it is. It's mesh size. There's been court cases trying to change the mesh size to target the fishery that they really want to fish for, but you can't. There's been law cases brought that says, no, nope, it's got to be this size mesh. That's it. That's, that's what it says. That's where you have to go. It's not a good management tool because you can't adjust it once it worked. The only way that we keep coming up with how to fix it would be to put another constitutional amendment back out there 
Do you think the public would ever get trying to tweak a rule that they don't? It was kind of an easy sell. Ban the nets. That's an easy one. But trying to get them to say, okay, well, we got this net limitation here. We're just wanting to tweak it. It's sort of like you. You'd never get the general public who's all going to vote on it, fishermen and non-fishermen, to understand what you're trying to do. And with hindsight now, sure, Doc, could you have done anything else differently? Besides that one? <laughs> That's a good question. I think on some of the fisheries, we learned from our mistakes and changed them. So I think there's a learning curve in everything that you do, and you, tr you really try hard to get it right and not to destroy people's lives and livelihoods while you're trying to fix something. The one thing I personally would have done differently is put in the stock assessments and find a way to fund the research that has to be done in order to make those management decisions faster. Now, that's actually a federal issue to some extent. Florida's fisheries in Washington are not like the West Coast where 60% of our commercial fish come from is the Northwest or New England. Because we have so many species and we're a warm water fishery, those fish are harder to handle, they're harder to process, they're sensitive, unlike really cold water fish. And so what, what happens is, is our money that goes to Washington doesn't necessarily, some of that that I said doesn't come back to Florida. It goes where the strong people in Washington, the strong representatives are able to pull, going, we supply 60% of the United States commercial seafood. We want stock assessments every year. We get stock assessments every four years or three years and have to battle to get somewhat of a stock assessment every couple of years. And that stock assessment is what rules your next set of regulations and whether or not you can give the fish back or what you're having to clamp down on. So that's the one, one thing I would do differently would be to have that process, the funding in place for all those stock assessments that are necessary before you start regulating the fish. Sometimes they got the cart before the horse. Despite all of what you said, is Florida then still the sport fishing capital of the world? Of course we are. <laughs> Look at the variety. Like I said, if you've got a bucket list, we can knock that bucket list off really quick. What you want to fish for. Freshwater fish, saltwater fish, estuary fish. You can catch everything from marlin and sailfish to crappie and catfish. 500 plus species of fish and if you don't want to catch it you can dive around and just look at it swimming around underwater so when you say we're the fishing capital of the world and it's a whole experience you can come eat the fish see the fish stay in a beautiful location it's a full all-around enjoyable experience and I think we have something for every kind of fisherman whether you just started fishing and wanted to bring your kids to the most experienced, difficult fly fishing. And there's top water fishing, there's bottom fishing, and we have the ability. You can hire a guide to take you fishing, you can get on a charter boat,
to go fishing and keep your fish. You can put your own boat in the water. You can rent a boat and put it in the water. You can fish off of a pier. You can fish off of a beach. You can fish off of a bridge. I'm already here, so I'm sold. <laughs> I may have gotten off track or in the weeds, but I hope I... Uh... There's plenty there for the fishery regulators back home to chew over, I'm sure. Whether or not they can swallow it afterwards, what would the EU's other member states wanting to have their say in how we manage our fish stocks is another matter. But I'm very grateful for the time you've invested here into at least giving it a shot. My thanks then to Cathy Barcourt for at least trying to point out the right direction to us. <laughs> <laughs>